It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. about the animals that they raise and care about the uh, 
the food that they produce. It's it, it's pretty graphic and it's pretty horrifying. Uh, um, I was particularly struck by a video I remember a few years ago at a turkey farm in, I believe, North Carolina. And it was a turkey farm that produced turkeys for uh, butter butterball, I think it was. And uh, um, I had the Betancourt case in front of me, but I don't have the one in North Carolina. Uh, but that one just came, sprung to my mind. And I remember watching it and seeing the, the way that these turkeys were raised, the conditions they were raised in, the confinement uh it it's it was it was pretty horrible to to watch that uh and to see how um uh you know these animals were uh were kicked were uh were shoved around were uh um uh you know they had uh, open wounds terrible awful wounds on some of these turkeys and to watch them uh walking around like that untreated and uh, they raise a particular type of turkey on that farm, which is a broad-breasted bronze or a broad-breasted white, I think, was the ones that they raised there. And those are these, we call them industrial birds, these, these ones that can't, so big, they can't reproduce on their own. It all has to be uh, AI, artificial insemination, to uh, fertilize the hens because the toms have been grown so big that they can't do the job. And uh, if you've ever seen turkeys doing the job, it's really rather funny because uh, the uh, the hen just kind of squats on the ground and the uh, the the tom climbs on the back and then they do what's called for people who lizards and birds it's called the a cloacal kiss is what they call it and uh, the tom fertilizes the hen and, uh, and then he moves on to the next one and it it only takes a couple seconds and boom they're done and uh, I raise uh, heritage turkeys I raise Narragansetts and I've got a uh, Bourbon red Narragansett mutt hen who uh, actually used to perch on my shoulder when she was younger. And I incubate the chicks and then sell some of the chicks to uh, neighboring farms and people around uh, around here. And I do it small scale. I don't do it. You know, right now I only have seven turkeys. Um, and uh, But to watch the way that these turkeys, and I know how much room these turkeys take, how much feed they consume, and uh, how much uh, uh, land it takes and, and what kind of attention it takes to uh, to care for them. Uh, and to see the conditions that these animals are raised in, uh, you know, and you can begin to understand why when you go to the store, you can buy turkey for uh, 99 cents a pound when uh, uh, I, you know, I mean, I couldn't even imagine those, uh, um, you know, most people around here will sell a turkey for anywhere from 60 to 100 bucks processed, finished, uh, finished turkey. And uh, if you raise turkeys yourself, then you get a sense of that, of uh, why it's so expensive and uh, the kind of room they need. Uh, and so, uh, so seeing these videos, why, and I make a, you know, I know a lot of people can't watch these videos and I understand, but, uh, um, seeing these videos, it's, uh, it's a graphic reminder to me of why it's so important to, to support small farms, uh, support farms and, and get to know your farmers and people who really love the food that they produce, uh, to see these factory farms, I mean, they're hiring people for, you know, minimum wage, uh, and uh, um, you know, these people are just, it's a job to them, and that's it, and they bring them on the farm. And uh, a lot of the owners of the farm are busy or off doing something else, and they, they trust, have trust in their employees like you normally do. And so to see what ends up happening here is, uh, uh, in those conditions is uh, it's pretty horrifying to see that. So these uh, activists go on these farms, the hidden cameras, oftentimes they get jobs, and they film, you know, what's happening, and they film the abuses. And they're not involved in the abuses, but they do film what happens, you know, on these hog farms and on these uh, these big, huge hog farms and these big turkey farms and these big dairy farms, and uh, to see how some of these employees treat the animals. And in the case of Idaho, it was this Betancourt dairy farm, 
and it was uh, pretty graphic stuff that uh, in this video that's there. And I and I suggest that uh, um, you know people you should. Uh, I, I recommend to people. I know a lot of people have a yeah, can't do it, can't witness that type of cruelty. But um, you know, unfortunately, in a lot of these factory farms, it's not just the uh, it's not just the cruelty. It's the conditions that these animals are raised in. And uh, and I you know go to the grocery store and buy meat from the grocery store every once in a while, or buy have to buy milk from the from the grocery store because uh, um, uh, you know it's illegal to sell raw milk in uh, the state that I'm in. Ironically. Uh, I can't go down the street to a dairy farm down the road, uh, and there's a lovely dairy farm down the road from me where I know the animals are treated extremely well down there, uh, moved every day onto fresh pasture, uh, and uh, um, you know, and I know exactly walk on the farm, and I can talk to the farmers, and I know the farmers that are there. I know just how much they love, they have to love what they do, because there's not a whole lot of money in it. It's the truth. It's uh, you know, they love the freedom, and they love uh, they love it's a. Uh, it's a tradition. It's a it's a it's a lifestyle. It's more than just a job, and so I can buy milk right from them, and then bring it back here, and I could pasteurize it if I want to. It's easy to pasteurize milk. It's not hard. Or I could drink it raw, and uh, and most people advocate drinking it raw because uh, uh, it changes the proteins uh, when you changes changes what's inside the milk. I mean, there's a lot of science behind it. And there was a time in history, I, and uh, months ago I interviewed uh, Sally Fallon Morell, who's one of the leading advocates for raw milk in this country, from the Weston A. Price Foundation. And uh, she went over some of the science on it and some of the findings on it. And there was a time when people didn't understand bacteria, they didn't understand you know, sanitation, sanitary conditions, hygiene, uh, and uh, uh, pasteurization. Mm, made sense at that time. You know, there was a lot of very, there was milk at times in the cities with killing children. And... Um, uh, but today, when we understand culturing bacteria, we understand bacteria, we understand uh, uh, sanitary conditions, we understand hygiene, and uh, so it's not necessary anymore to do that. And uh, yet, and a number of states allow it. Pennsylvania, a neighboring state to Maryland, allows it. But uh, for some inexplicable reason, Maryland does not. And uh, farmers now, unfortunately, can't sell unless they have their own plants and set up their own pasteurization and everything. Uh, they can't sell milk off, right off the farm which is ridiculous. They have to sell it to one of the major companies. And the major companies dictate the price, and it's, it's devastating for farmers. So uh, what happens is, is that you end up with these factory farms that consolidate rather than have a few farmers here and there that are raising a herd of 14, a dozen, 14, 20 cattle. They end up with hundreds and hundreds of cattle. Uh, and, uh, and unless you have you know, thousands of acres of land, it's very difficult to be able to manage that at that size. And so they have to hire people, hire employees, and you put a lot of trust and faith in your employees. And oftentimes that faith in, in your employees is let down. In the case of Betancourt, that was the explanation from the family that owns the dairy in Idaho, was that they fired the people, the individuals immediately. Uh, and uh, they made amends. They did typically what you do in crisis management, where they, uh, they owned up to the problem. And then they went overboard, and they went beyond you know, what they needed to do to try to solve the problem, or at least that's what they, they said. But see, a funny thing is happened after that is that Idaho quietly enacted legislation that would prosecute, criminalize people who go on these farms and film this and release it to the public. These whistleblowers, uh, and um, and so uh, and it's happened across the uh, uh, across the country. There's been these laws going on. So while we should be applauding these individuals who go into these these big factory farms and expose the the uh, cruelty that takes place on there. Um, Instead, 
they, uh, you know, the country's horrified. People are, are, you know, think how terrible this is. It makes it on the nightly news occasionally. Uh, and uh, everybody breathes a sigh of relief and says, oh, okay, good, we can go back to how things were. Well, except for the fact that what happens is then the states then criminalize the, uh, the individuals who do that, uh, or they pass legislation to criminalize the activity. And so these individuals now uh, become criminals who do these type of things. They're not heroes anymore. Well, they're heroes to most, most Americans, but, but see, most Americans don't know the next step where they criminalize these guys. They call them terrorists uh, going on here trying to, to solve this. They're terrorists. They're, they're, uh, they're threatening the country's uh, food supply by doing this, this type of thing. And uh, the, the farmers that I know who raise food uh, uh, for people are proud of what they do, and they're happy to allow people onto their farms to see the conditions that the animals are raised in. Uh, and uh, they work very hard to, uh, um, to do that. And there's a whole industry that's grown out of that called agritourism, where you invite people on your farm to see the chickens that are laying the eggs and how they live and to see the pigs that are out there in the sunshine and rolling around and, and uh, rooting in the ground and digging up uh, roots and small trees and eating uh, you know, underground tubers and whatever they can find and, and living the life of a pig. They're nature's bulldozers or cattle as they, they wander lazily around the fields grazing throughout the day or the sheep. That are the same thing, wander lazily around the fields, uh, grazing throughout the day, and then the next day they're moved, and so on and so on, and while the farmer manages his, uh, his pasture, his pasture land. And this is the way that it should be. But instead, what, uh, what we have here in many cases, uh, and, and these are the ones that are, that are mostly owned by major or supply major corporations where profits are everything, uh, margins, increasing your margin, your profit margin all the time, and you have various people with their hands in the till, uh, more more hands, more money. So they're constantly squeezing the farmer uh, to to uh, to produce cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and hence we have the rise of uh, of the use of unprecedented use of antibiotics among livestock, which is breeding a uh, uh, this antibiotic resistant bacteria. Uh, and uh, so we have even more nightmares coming as a result of that because if you take these animals and you put them in conditions that they're not intended to be in uh, and you do that over and over and over again, you breed disease, you breed bacteria, you breed all kinds of problems. Uh, and, uh, and that's not to say that, that farmers don't have problems. Even farmers, for example, I pasture my chickens and I pasture my, uh, uh, my turkeys. But I have uh, three little turkeys now that are about four months old that are about three months old, I'd say. And they are, I just put them out recently with, um, with the big turkeys. And uh, I have one little one that is trying to eat the face of another one, and he's done it repeatedly. And there are reasons for that. Typically it has to do with because you keep them in too tight um, confinement. Now, I don't have that problem. Sometimes you just end up with a nasty bird, and this little guy is a nasty bird. So I have him isolated right now, and I've been researching ways to be able to to stop that. Uh, and uh, um, you know they're out in a major pasture right now, and I just went out. I've I've gotten the other one cleaned up because I've had them isolated, and uh, they're out in this big pasture now, and I can see them from my office window here where I'm doing this show. Uh, at least the two of them there, and he's in good shape, and he's all cleaned up. And today I walked out there, and sure enough. We call him Hannibal, Hannibal the turkey. He had uh, bitten the face, uh, pecked the face of the one whose face was messed up and uh, was bleeding again. So I had to go take him inside, clean him all up again, and put him back out there. And then I had to separate Hannibal and put him back in another pen, a closed-in area, away from everybody else. 
and I was hoping that by putting them out there with uh, with the big birds that they'd be much better. And then right behind them, my two toms are trying to kill each other. They're fighting. It's not even springtime, and they were beating each other up, and I've had to separate them. In fact, when I finish up my show here, I'm going to have to go up and put one in one pen and another in another pen. The hens don't seem to be bothered by any of this. They're just walking around chasing bugs. And the chickens are outside chasing bugs as well, too, and they're not bothered by any of this. But, uh, um, you know, you take these animals and you put them in conditions where they're not supposed to be and uh, where they're, they're tightly confined and they, they you know, um, develop aggression uh, and they're animals. They're not, they're not people. You know, you shouldn't anthropomorphize them. You shouldn't uh, uh, think that they're people and they're not. They're animals. And, uh, and so, uh, um, you know, we as farmers manage those, uh, those behaviors to the best of our abilities. But we put them in conditions, most of us put them in conditions to thrive. Uh, there are factory farms out there where profit margins are everything. They are more interested in profits. And they, uh, what they do is they uh, put them in, in conditions that, uh, where they can make the most money. And that usually involves keeping them in a uh, giant warehouse, not a barn, it's a giant warehouse. And uh, uh, they tightly confine them. Uh, and uh, keep them in there and, and feed them a doses of medication regularly, all of them, uh, proactively, uh, prophylactically, because uh, they don't want them to get diseases. And so uh, what happens in those conditions, obviously, is that the bacteria breeds up a resistance to that, and then you end up with these antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So we have that in, in raw turkey meat now that's popping up around the country, and, uh, and then it contaminates uh, the uh, slaughterhouses, too, where these animals are being slaughtered, because there are rules here in the States about how you slaughter in the United States, about how you slaughter animals. You have to do that in these slaughterhouses, in these small, uh, these, excuse me, these mega slaughterhouses. Uh, poultry, the law is, my understanding, is up to 1,000 birds. You don't need to be USDA inspected. But, of course, Joel Salatin, who's a, one of our farmer philosophers of the day, he ran, in fact, you can Google his video where he explains the situation, and he had uh, USDA inspectors, and they were trying to shut down his operation. And uh, they came and did bacteria swabs and so on, and they found that the bacteria he butchers his, his birds outside uh, under a uh, um, it's under it's it's in a it's in an open barn. Uh, there's no walls on it. It's got a roof on it, and he, he processes them through there. And they found that there was very little bacteria in there uh, compared to slaughterhouses, which which had you know significantly more bacteria uh, uh, at, when they cultured uh, swabs. There were samples that were taken from the uh, from where he butchers them versus where they do it in slaughterhouses. So uh, you know that this is uh, so. What happens is is you get these activists who go into these farms and they film these conditions and, uh, and then they release it to the public so the public can see what's going on and how these things are uh, are doing it. And then it's intended to you know educate Americans, but also shame these major corporations that are purchasing, whether it's you know Burger King or Walmart or Butterball. Uh, um, uh, and uh, to get these corporations to change the way they do business. And to, uh, to, to now, of course, these corporations, all they'll do is they'll just switch to another farm or they'll issue a statement saying that we support, you know, XYZ and, and uh, we ensure all of our, we take, have standards to ensure all of our animals are raised humanely. Uh, and uh, we fired this particular farm. And uh, so it's, it's uh, you know, they put the blame on the, on the farmers necessarily, but it's, it's the system. It's the entire system. Uh, that is really at, at fault here. It's not just this. And so what do these major corporations do in the background along with uh, the legislators that they have in their pockets that they bribed, that they've funded 
for the campaign money is they get these guys to initiate legislation. Uh, and you have these shadowy groups like ALEC, this uh, this legislative uh, organization in the United States that drafts legislation, so-called uh, ag-gag legislation, that uh, makes it a crime for people to go in there and to film these conditions, makes it a crime to uh, for transparency. And I am a very strong advocate of transparency. I always have been. I believe that you should be able to go on the farm. You should be able to shake the farmer's hand. You should be able to meet the animals. You should be able to see how they're raised. And you don't have to be a farmer. You don't have to have extensive knowledge about uh, um, raising animals, how, how to raise pigs, how to raise birds, to know that if you look at it and these animals have are covered in sores and uh, there are flies all over the place and it smells uh, in some of these uh, warehouses where they keep these meat chickens, you, can, you can't even walk in there because the ammonia smell that these chickens live in is so bad from the manure that's there. And if you can't, if you can't do that, why would you want to eat that food? Why would you want to go in there and purchase something from that farmer? You wouldn't. Obviously, you wouldn't. So the solution for these corporations and the legislators, the uh, legislators that they've they've uh, bought and paid for, is to uh, try to hide that, to try to sweep it under the rug. Hey, we let one get out, but then we follow crisis management 101, and we we apologize, get the CEO out front to uh, to to uh, take responsibility for it, personal responsibility for it, maybe throw in an anecdote about his family. And then to uh, to go overboard to overcompensate for it, and uh, and then they move on to the next thing. And then in the background, they are working to prevent these type this type of information from getting out. And in some cases, that involves moving the entire farm out of the country. For example, Smithfield, which has a massive pork farm down in Mexico now. That is my understanding. I've seen pictures of it. No one has been able to get inside it, but uh, it looks like a uh, like a prison, like a military base surrounded by uh, chicken wire, uh, and uh, by, not chicken wire, by barbed wire, and uh, they, no one can get on there, uh, you know, to be, to be able to get into that. And so, and that's what they, they try to do quietly in the background. Meanwhile, Americans, you know, wheel the shopping carts to grocery stores and are completely clueless about the stuff that's going on. Every once in a while, it pops its head up, but they play this little game of whack-a-mole, knock it back down, and it's done, and it's over. And so that's what they've got. So you've got these states currently in the United States. And I'm looking at statistics right now from the, uh, the uh, uh, American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty of, uh, to Animals. And they've got a, uh, a whole section you can look at and see where your state uh, ranks on so-called ag-gag laws. And I can say my state, Maryland, does not have one. That's good. It hasn't even been introduced in here, despite the fact that farming is, is big in, uh, in Maryland. It's, it's, we have uh, a number of friends who are, run good-sized farms. Uh, in this state, and, uh, um, and Maryland has a lot of grants and, and supports its farmers. Uh, Arizona has its own legislation, but that failed. Arkansas introduced legislation 2013. That failed. California introduced legislation 2013. That never passed. Colorado introduced a bill in 2015, uh, and that bill was uh, tabled. It uh, hasn't gone right now. It's stuck in committee. Florida introduced legislation 2012. That failed. Idaho passed its uh, law in 2014. However, this is the one I was just talking about. It was late July, early August. That bill was struck down by federal court as being unconstitutional. Illinois introduced legislation 2012, failed. Indiana introduced legislation 2012, 2013, 2014. The bills in 2012 and 2013 failed, but the one in 2014 stripped of ag-gag type provisions. That one actually passed, uh, but there are some matters in there. It's a bit complicated. Iowa passed an ag-gag law in March 2012, 
criminalizes providing, quote, false information on an employment application with the intent to record images. I was directly focused on uh, activists and whistleblowers who go in to, uh, to, uh, so they can prosecute these guys who film these and release them. Kansas passed its own, uh, it's called the Farm, Animal, and Field, Crop, and Research Facilities Protection Act. But that one passed section 1990. And that criminalizes, quote, entering an animal facility to take pictures by photograph, video camera, or by any other means with the intent of causing harm to the enterprise. Interesting. Uh, you know, it's intended to protect the corporation rather than educate people about food safety. Kentucky added an ag-gag provision to a pro-animal bill in 2014. That bill never made it. Minnesota introduced legislation 2011-2012. That failed. Missouri passed an ag-gag law in July 2012, and that mandates that evidence of animal abuse must be turned over to law enforcement within 24 hours, preventing the collection of adequate evidence to show patterns of abuse, neglect, or abandonment, and potentially hindering prosecution of abusers. So these activists cannot film over a period of time and then release that footage. If they have any type of a hint, a whiff of it, they just simply have to turn it over to uh, law enforcement. And then, of course, these major firms you know, lawyer up, and, uh, uh, and that's the extent of it. That's the end of it. Uh, Montana passed an ag-ag law in 1991. It criminalizes entering an animal facility with the intent to commit a prohibited act, entering an animal facility to take pictures by photograph, video camera, or other means with the intent to commit criminal defamation, and entering an animal facility if the person knows entry is forbidden. Introduced a quick reporting bill in 2015, providing that a person who knowingly fails to report evidence of cruelty to animals at an animal facility within 24 hours commits the offense of cruelty to animals. Uh, and uh, that bill thankfully died. That was there. Nebraska introduced legislation in 2012-2013, failed. New Hampshire introduced legislation in 2013, that failed. It reintroduced it in 2014, and that bill died. New Mexico introduced legislation in 2013, which failed, and then introduced a quick reporting bill in 2015 to make failure to turn over evidence of animal abuse within 24 hours of collection a misdemeanor. New York introduced its own legislation in 2011 and 2012, both of those bills failed. North Carolina has an ag-gag bill, HB 405. It was vetoed by the governor, but the North Carolina House and Senate overturned the veto. The law goes into effect on January 1, 2016. The law prohibits anyone from gaining access to the non-public area of their employer's property for the purpose of making secret recordings or removing data or other material. The law will create a civil cause of action allowing a business to sue for damages. North Carolina also introduced ag-gag bills that were defeated in 2013 and 2014. And these obviously were, these, this legislation was, was introduced after the, uh, uh, the, this, the horrific turkey video, the videos of these turkeys that were raised by this, this uh, farm that produced them for Butterball. Uh, really, you know, awful, awful video. North, Carolina, North Dakota, sorry, passed the Animal Research Facility Damage Act, which makes it a Class B misdemeanor to enter an animal facility and using or attempting to use a camera, video recorder, or any other video or audio recording equipment. Pennsylvania introduced legislation in 2013, which failed. Tennessee introduced legislation in 2013, which was passed by legislature but vetoed by the governor. It introduced it again in 2014, and that failed again. Utah passed an ag-gag law in March 2012, criminalizes providing false information on an employment application with the intent to record images, preventing an investigator from gaining access to a farm. Vermont introduced legislation in 2013, and that failed. Washington State introduced legislation in 2015 to create the crime of, quote, interference with agriculture production and classifies it as a gross misdemeanor with maximum penalties of one year in jail, a $5,000 fine, or both. 
Wyoming introduced legislation in 2013, which also failed. They introduced it in 2015 to criminalize collection of, quote, resource data, including photos and video, on private land and prohibit it from being used as evidence in criminal trials. Uh, the governor signed the bill into law in March. And so most of these have been active in the past couple of years, and obviously they have been enacted as a result of these uh, video that was here. Well, the good news is, is that these laws are being tested in court right now. And uh, most recently in Idaho, we had the case uh, of uh, the, uh, the Idaho's ag-gag laws, and a federal court ruled that it was unconstitutional. And this is uh, from a website, AboveTheLaw.com, where ag-gag law falls in federal court. And this just came out two days ago. This, this, uh, this article was written by, uh, by writer Sam Wright. Several months ago, I wrote that ag-gag laws are lawsuit fodder. Last week, one such lawsuit proved meritorious. Recall that ag-gag laws are designed to prevent individuals from taking and publicizing recordings of agricultural operations, often by making it a crime to do either. They're also often obviously unconstitutional. In my previous post, which focused on Wyoming's particularly broad ag-gag law, a law that criminalizes collecting, quote, uh, sorry, quote, collecting resource data, unquote, from private property without permission, I, uh, excuse me one second here, uh, I suggested that we, uh, we can all brainstorm ways the law is likely unconstitutional. I also noted that Idaho's somewhat more circumspect ag-gag law is winding its way through the courts now. While in development that should shock no one, Idaho's ag-gag law turned out not to be circumspect enough to withstand a constitutional challenge. A federal judge has struck it down, citing violations of the First and Fourteenth Amendments. Apparently, Idaho's ag-gag law had its genesis in an August 2012 investigation of Idaho's Betancourt dairies by the group Mercy for Animals. The group managed to place an undercover investigator in the dairy, and the immediate result was a horrific video of actions that I think everyone can agree are objectless abuse, plain and simple. Uh, He has a link to the video uh, that's there. Uh, Consequences unfolded. Five dairy workers were fired, and three of them were charged with misdemeanor animal cruelty. Good. We should all consider that a success. Well, veteran food and uh, ag reporter Tom Philpot of uh, Mother Jones uh, said behind the scenes, Idaho's $6.6 billion dairy industry quietly began working with its friends in the state legislature on a different response. In the more value-neutral words of Chief, Ju- Chief Judge B. Lynn Windmill of the District of Idaho in his decision striking down the law, the Idaho Dairyman's Association, a trade industry organization that represents every dairy farmer and producer in the state, responded to the negative publicity by drafting and sponsoring a bill that became Idaho Code Section 18-7042. This created the crime of, quote, interference with agricultural production, unquote, and criminalized a host of activities including, quote, entering an agricultural production facility that is open to the public and, without the facility owner's express consent, making audio or video recordings of the conduct of an agricultural facility's operations. That language would cause not only the type of undercover operation that gave rise to the new law, but also whistleblower activity by legitimate employees. And the penalties for committing, quote, interference with agricultural production, unquote, included not only fines and jail time, but also mandatory restitution in the amount of, quote, twice the value of the damage resulting from the violation of this section, unquote. Thus, if a whistleblower video resulted in a boycott, the Idaho law technically would require the whistleblower to pay twice the amount of any sales lost to the boycott quite possibly, while sitting behind bars. Needless to say, the law gave rise to a swift legal challenge. It was signed into law on February 28, 2014, and a coalition of organizations and journalists filed and announced a lawsuit on March 17, 2014. 
The state quickly moved to dismiss the coalition's broad-ranging complaint, which the state's supporting memorandum characterized as, quote, prolix, unquote. <laughs> the state prolix is uh, uh, long-winded, is, is uh, you know, I think is dry, long-winded. Uh, the, uh, the state suggested the lawsuit was nothing more than a misguided attempt to take down an ironclad statute that, rather than posing a broad threat to speech, actually, quote, proscribes quite specific forms of content of conduct in order to protect private property rights. The court, though, didn't buy the state's argument, at least the federal courts didn't buy it. While its order on the motion to dismiss did whittle down the complaint somewhat, it left intact the complaint's core claims that Idaho's statute constituted content-specific regulation of speech in violation of the First Amendment and that the statute singled out animal rights groups in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The court also left intact the plaintiff's less glamorous preemption claims. Sometime later, lead plaintiff Animal Legal Defense Fund filed a motion for summary judgment, which last week the court granted. Specifically, the court held that the Idaho statute violated both the First and Fourteenth Amendments. It was content-specific restriction on speech that was not narrowly tailored to serve a compelling state interest. In fact, the court held that the state's professed property rights interest was not compelling given strong countervailing public policy arguments. Given the public's interest in the safety of the food supply, worker safety, and the humane treatment of animals, it would contravene strong First Amendment values to say the state has a compelling interest in affording these heavily regulated facilities extra protection from public scrutiny. Neither was the statute narrowly tailored to protect property rights. The expansive reach of this statute is hard to reconcile with basic speech, whistleblower, and press rights. And on top of that, the statute singled out a discrete group for harsh treatment for no other reason than, animal, than animus against that group. ALDF has shown that enactment of this law was animated by an improper animus toward animal welfare groups and other undercover investigators in the agricultural industry, and the law furthers no other legitimate or rational purpose. None of these conclusions appear to be particularly close call. The phrase abundant evidence appears at one point. The Idaho Dairymen's Association has urged the state to appeal to the Ninth Circuit, but it's probably in the state's interest to stop throwing good money after bad. This is their comment on above the law and paying to defend a plainly unconstitutional law, especially one that's also poor public policy. It's certainly a bad way to spend public funds. If you're not convinced that the constitutional issues are that clear cut, note that the plaintiff's press release included a quote from Erwin Chemerinsky, who probably wrote your, your some law textbook, calling the Idaho statute deeply disturbing and noting that he was confident that this law will be struck down. However, the appeal decision goes, for now I offer congratulations to the Legion of Public Interest Lawyers uh, who secured this major victory in the District of Idaho. Uh, so there we go. Uh, that was the whole thing. And that's good news. That's very good news uh, that, that these are being shot down because I think that, that we have to encourage transparency in these farms, in farms, you know, for food safety, for the, uh, the safety of food supply. But the problem is, is that we're trying to fix a system that is terribly, terribly, terribly broken. Uh, and, uh, and that system uh, is, is, it needs to be addressed. It's not just a matter of bringing people in to show some abuses and clean up these abuses in these major farms. It's that uh, we should be, and I've said this before, really, I think the solution to the food problem in this country is to promote food diversity, is to promote, is to, uh, to, to have uh, uh, regulators work with uh, local farms to try to figure out ways to, be, to, to help them to produce food locally and have it diversified so that if there is a problem with one farm, it's not going to affect half the nation. In, in I, I think of the case of that uh, the egg supplier, that that uh, egg company, that uh, recall had to recall half a billion eggs that affected almost the entire country on that. 
Uh, also, these, these now these, these cases of avian flu that are striking these major chicken farms all around the country. Uh, meanwhile, most you know, backyard flocks, most, most small farms have been unaffected by avian flu. Uh, and, uh, and and spreading out all of the uh, the farms around there is is going to benefit everyone uh, doing this. Now it's quite likely that it will lead to a slightly increased cost in food, but uh, you know not significantly much. You might pay a dollar more a pound for something, but quite frankly, in my opinion, I think Americans eat. And you know, I know certain people would disagree with me, but it's my feeling that that Americans eat too much meat, anyways. And that uh, um, you know that we don't need to eat as much meat. And I say this from uh, uh, you know someone who who raises his own uh, animals for food, and uh, uh, and I hunt, yeah, uh, um, and I have uh, venison down in my freezer, and so I am uh, you know I'm an omnivore. I make my own bacon, uh, and I make my own cheese, but I do believe that Americans eat too much meat, and uh, and I believe that if we we reduced our consumption of meat, we would have health benefits. Uh, and uh, um, uh, around the country, and it would it would fix a lot of these problems, uh, and and that in combination with, with uh, diversity, it means that you could you could buy more locally, and uh, you could support your your local farmers, keep your money in your community rather than sending it off to you know these massive corporations that are around. Now there are people who would disagree with me uh, on that, and and that's fine. I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, you know there are people who believe that you should be doing it every um, uh, eating meat every day, eating you know very fatty meats and lard and things like that and there's health benefits to that uh and i suppose if you if you know you certainly want to do that that that's fine i know what works for me and what works for me is that i uh um you know try to eat a vegetarian during the week and then on the weekends i eat whatever i want uh for the most part and it seems to work well for my health and i feel good and i'm thin and but i also stay active uh and reducing the the amount of uh, processed food is a big thing too the uh, the crackers and the potato chips and uh, all the processed foods that that you you buy the frozen foods um that that people buy and uh you know that that is certainly a, a benefit uh will help people now i uh when i was introducing this show in the beginning i i talked about two of the uh the um the animal rights groups that uh, uh were bringing this case and uh one is the animal legal defense fund and the other is uh, people for the ethical treatment of animals now uh PETA is obviously is much more well known than the Animal Legal Defense Fund, uh, and uh, but they both share similar uh, views. And uh, although PETA has, has in the past been a little more extreme about their views and their their advocacy of, uh, uh, of vegetarianism and veganism, and uh, and I have a I, I do have a problem with that. And I I have to wonder if. I, I, now, I've already stated I believe that the transparency, I believe that uh, keeping these farms and, and uh, uh, open and uh, allowing people to come on the farms to see how the animals are raised. And uh, if, if you want to hide something, then, then you, know, you have a right to do that, but people also have a right to go and to look and to film these, these things and to release if there are abuses. I do not believe animals should be abused, you know, the... the uh, 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 you know, they, they, they are animals. They certainly try to abuse each other regularly. In fact, I'm sitting out here, and I'm going to have to go deal with this in 20 minutes when the show is over. I'm going to have to go break up these two 20-pound wrecking balls that are throwing themselves at each other. Uh, I broke up a rooster fight earlier in the day this morning, and, uh, you know, the, all of these animals will willingly kill each other without any any feeling whatsoever for it and uh, would walk right over the top of, of each other 
and uh, wouldn't care, you know, they're they're they're, you know, and be happy about it. The, the corpse of their their uh, their rival uh, on the ground, they would stomp it right into the ground with absolutely no feelings of sympathy whatsoever for them. Uh, and uh, and so you know, we uh, these are animals, and they they don't have the same type of uh, uh, feelings of sense that 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 people do. Uh, I also believe that meat is important, and that. Uh, that it is uh, that it is important, and that uh, um, it's important part of not only the local economy, but it's also an important part of of we are omnivores. Now we can live as vegans, we can live as uh, as vegetarians, and if people want to do that, more power to them. I think that's fine if that's the way you want to live your life. I think that that's I don't have a problem with that. I do think you have to be aware of the fact that if you go out and you buy a leather belt, you buy leather shoes, or leather jacket, or if you uh, um, you know, if you are purchasing uh, uh, products that are made from byproducts of the slaughter of animals, then you have to recognize that. And so, you know, if you're wearing your leather jacket and your Doc Martens and you're preaching about veganism and cruelty to animals, then you are a hypocrite. Uh, but I think that most people do support uh, uh, treating animals humanely, uh, and that includes slaughtering animals humanely. And I do notice that a number of these organizations – that they have a caveat. They at the end of of their claims about this, they do say that uh, you know it, most of them focus on factory farms. But at the end of the line, they say ultimately our goal is to get people to stop consuming animals, uh, stop consuming meat, and uh, uh, switch to a vegetarian vegan lifestyle. And uh, uh, you know I. I I, that's fine that if that's their advocacy, but I think that people have to be aware of that. If you're donating to these organizations, if you're involved with these organizations, you have to know that that's the end game. And the reality is, is that that doesn't work for a lot of people. A lot of people are okay with this. Uh, I raise my animals to uh, a well. Uh, the farmers that I know raise their animals very well. The uh, the dairy farm down the road does raise uh, beef. They they have veal. Uh, and um, and they but they don't the, you can go down there and see their calves are out walking around in the field they're not kept in a box they're not there's a lot of uh, of uh, uh, myths about this you know there are I'm sure there are major companies that do that that uh, that that keep uh, you know calves in a crate to increase the amount of uh, uh, fat and reduce the, uh, the 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 muscle and sinew. In the animal, uh, and but you know, you buy veal from a major farm, and you walk out, and you see those calves walking around in the field and grazing lazily around the field. Then, then veal, I think, is is perfectly acceptable because for a farmer, you know, you you have to it's it's a business at the same time, and so you have to watch the the money. And so if you if you know that your customers are going to purchase a certain amount of steaks and you know finished beef uh, products. Uh, but but you also know there's demand for veal, and that uh, it's it is less expensive, and it's better to ultimately to slaughter those calves while they're young. Same thing with the lamb. Not everybody likes mutton. Uh, people like lamb. They like young lamb, and uh, and so uh, so they slaughter those lambs young, and you don't need them. So why would you want to keep them, you know, around? Uh, and uh, they also help to bring in quick income for the farmer as well too, rather than have to wait a year. Or so for the animal to 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 grow out, and mutton is not popular here in the United States. So that's why for for uh, 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 sheep farmers and farmers who raise uh, sheep and lambs, then uh, then lamb is for meats. Lamb is is you know is 
it brings in good money in the beginning for them so that they can stay in business and they can continue to operate because fuel is not free, fertilizer is not free, feed is not free. So uh, um, they have to do this. They, uh, it, it's worthwhile to do this. And the animals are treated well and humanely. And then in the point of slaughter, uh, they are dispatched quickly. Now, there are new rules that people are advocating in Europe, for instance, in the slaughter of animals, where they want to, uh, to advocate where they actually electrocute the animal first to stun it, uh, and then they, then they slaughter it after that, uh, after it's electrocuted and effectively stunned. Uh, the birds, I believe they dip them in electrocuted water first, which electrocutes them, and they're stunned. And then after that, then they cut the uh, carotids on either side of their neck, and they, they bleed out after that. Uh, in the small farms, I've, done, I've butchered my own birds, and I use the old-fashioned axe method, which is quick, uh, and uh, um, thank the bird, and, uh, um, and then take the bird's head off, and, uh, and then after that, and wait a second while the, uh, the nerves go, and then hang the bird to bleed out after that for a little bit, and then, of course, you know, follow the steps, dip the bird in warm water to, to loosen the feathers, pluck the feathers, and, uh, um, uh, you know, and then... Uh, uh, dress the bird out and uh, ice it down very quickly so it's cold and then put it in the fridge. Uh, Frankly, I like fresh turkey. I prefer fresh turkey to frozen turkey because when you freeze it, it breaks down the meat. Fresh turkey, there's a huge difference between the two uh, on that. But these are animals that were raised locally, raised right here. I try to buy my feed locally too from uh, from local feed producers that that purchase feed uh, from, uh, from local producers as well. Uh, and I have that benefit because I live out in the country and I can do that. And so I do my best. It's not, I'm not always perfect about it. Sometimes I've got to go to southern states. If the, uh, the, the, the Amish feed store that I go to is not open, they don't always keep the best hours. Sometimes I can't make it over there, so I'll buy a bag of feed from southern states. But southern states has actually been carrying more local feed as well, too, from pressure from people who want to purchase uh, feed that is locally produced there. And, uh, and it keeps the money in the state, keeps the money in locally. Uh, and so you pay a little bit more for that, although the Amish guys that I buy from, it's nothing fancy. They put it in a plain white sack. They've got an attachment there of the breakdown on, on what's in there and the protein uh, contents and everything based on the recipe that they use. And that's the extent of it. There's no fancy labeling. There's no marketing. They don't buy commercial space. They don't put ads in magazines, any of that stuff. They, uh, they're pretty, you know, it's pretty no frills, pretty low budget. And uh, it's not produced by ConAgra or any of these big uh, agriculture. There's, there's a... Uh, an Amish guy and a few young uh, young guys who work there, and they they grind up the feed right there, and they they put it in the sacks, and you can see it all the time. And they are very uh, careful, meticulous about the freshness of the feed. They talk to me. In fact, they they know their customers. I used to buy organic feed, but it was getting too expensive. It was almost 30 pounds for a 50-pound bag of feed. Uh, now I buy the the non-GMO feed from them, and I know there's some pesticides used in it, but unfortunately, that's the best that I can do. Uh, um, based on the, the price, it's, I can buy uh, 100 pounds for for that price of what a 50 pound bag used to cost me of, orga- of straight organic feed. And the organic feed came from ConAgra. It was from a major corporation. I don't know where they got it from, where all that feed came from. This I know that these guys are buying it from other local Amish farmers that they grind up and then sell back to the Amish community uh, based on that. So it's so so you know I I, uh, uh, I give up something and at the same time I also I, I get a benefit from it. And uh, and so I can appreciate that. But ultimately, these uh, these 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 organizations want to eliminate uh, consumption of meat in this country, uh, and and they live under this uh, this notion that animals are people, that they ha- should have the same rights as people, 
that uh, um, that they uh, that they are um, uh, you know that, that they 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 should have it uh, you know, the same rights they should have the right to uh, um, long healthy life uh, and uh, the reality is is that my chickens my turkeys rely on me if uh, you know the uh, they are uh, they get you know I lock them up every night I, they get fed every day I make sure they have water. Uh, every day and uh, clean the coops, provide them fresh straw regularly, uh, and uh, they're terrible mothers. I've tried to let them hatch out uh, chicks before, and they just leave them, and the, ch- the chicks die of exposure ultimately, whereas when I do it, I bring them in with an incubator and take care of them and raise them. Now, is that sustainable? Um, yeah, I think it's sustainable. I could hatch them out with a uh, with a solar um, with a uh, solar platform with solar power on it and uh, and do it. Uh, and uh, um, with these, I raise heritage birds. I don't raise commercial birds. I have raised commercial birds in the past, uh, and uh, I don't like it because I don't think that it's—I don't think it's sustainable, uh, and uh, I think it's kind of ridiculous the fact that uh, that that you're raising these birds that have been produced. Uh, they are—they are essentially copyrighted. I could not take those birds, and I could not—they uh, um, uh, are licensed. I could not take those birds and reproduce them myself and sell them. Uh, and I've seen that with chickens as well too. And uh, the chickens that I raise are, are ostrilorps, so the breed that I raise, and they're good dual-purpose birds for consumption and for uh, um, for eggs as well. And now these have, have, over the years, obviously have been domesticated, and farmers have manipulated them over the years and uh, modified them through interbreeding and breeding in uh, traits that they like and breeding out traits that they don't like. So you've gotten, you know, chickens that evolved from birds in Asia over the years uh, are very different than uh, than anything that's there. And if you went to other countries and you saw chickens that are raised in, in Asia, they're small and they're they're much different than these uh, these big uh, ostrilorps that I have. These big, big, bulky, heavy birds that are out there. The rooster is uh, is he's a big boy, and uh, uh, the hens that I have are are uh, good layers, uh, and they lay about every other day, and it's not normal for you know birds to birds to do that they stop in the middle of winter my turkeys are very similar to uh outdoor uh outdoor birds they they lay in a window they're done laying for the for the year now they start in spring and then they lay through the uh through the end of summer and i collect the eggs and incubate the eggs and and uh, sell the chicks out of that uh i have uh, three hens as it is right now but i just got three more uh young turkeys i've sold most of them i kept three because i keep one for uh tom around for holidays uh, and butcher him on holidays, and he lives great. Except for right now, I think he's the one who is currently getting his uh, getting a beat down in the middle of the field. I'm gonna have to go break it down, break it up here in a minute. But they're mainly just flapping their wings at each other and throwing themselves against each other. And I'm gonna have to go separate them with some fencing in a few minutes to keep them uh, from uh, trying to kill each other. But I know that that Tom would have absolutely no problems killing that other bird and uh, stomping him into the ground and leaving him. Uh, and or, or mortally wounding him and leaving him there to die, and walking around him and stomping on him a few times more, and and that's this separates animals from people. Except we are humans are warlike. I would like to think that we're going to someday evolve beyond war and killing each other and the idiocy of that. Uh, uh, but we are ultimately uh, uh, stupid apes, and uh, we do we are belligerent ourselves. Well, many of us are belligerent, and uh, are uh, there are people who seem to love war, love war for money. And love war for uh, uh, the uh, makes them feel tough by waging war against small, small puny little countries that you can stomp into the ground on the auspices of human rights. 
but really it's more about money and control and natural resources. In any event, these organizations, I think, are, are misguided ultimately at the end. I think PETA, which uh, does its best to, uh, to show the cruelty of, um, of uh, uh, these, these factory farms and also slaughterhouses as well, too, uh, fail to to understand the uh, 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 fail to understand uh, the dynamic, the relationship that uh, people have with with animals, uh, and that uh, that we manage, we should be able to manage uh, the uh, um, uh, animals for food uh, for ourselves and uh, domesticate them and farm them, and uh, uh, and then in the case of uh, deer, for instance, around here, the parks love the hunters that come through there. Because we manage the uh, um, we manage the, uh, the 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 parks, and if we didn't, then the deer would come through and would uh, would devastate these parks. Because today we have these areas now where these these uh, housing developments build up next to these parks, and they have these these meticulous lawns which are super high protein for the deer. So the deer hang out by these lawns and graze, uh, and then tear through these parks and and you know in some of these parks for people who get out there they're they look like cattle trails uh that are uh, that that go through there you know where they've just devastated portions of the park flattened portions of the park and uh uh and come the fall during the ruts the bucks will try to kill each other to try to breed the uh the deer and make more deer and it's their biological imperative to to do that to and they have no problems trying to kill each other and leaving another one for dead uh maiming another one uh to establish dominance uh, and to, for the right to to breed the uh, the herd of does that are out there, and so as humans, we have the ability to manage. And in Maryland, in my state, we have more deer and more wild turkey than have been around in 100 years because the biologists who manage these programs do a darn good job doing it. They limit the time for gun hunters, and they open it up for bow hunters because they know from experience just how much bow hunters take and just how much gun hunters take. Uh, and uh, um, and they use that to, c- to help c- to control and curb the populations, and they've tried to do that with uh, I think in Virginia they had a pilot program where they tried to uh, um, a chemical castration of uh, of bucks in order to control the population. And uh, if you understand biology at all, then you understand and and, and also these uh, how these uh, these these uh, herds of deer operate. Then you know that if you chemically castrate you have a dozen bucks and you have a you have a dozen does if you chemically castrate the bucks and you miss one that one buck is going to go along and is going to breed that doe so whether no matter what and otherwise then you're going to have the buck that's going to come along and he's going to uh, to dominate the other bucks and he will have access to this an oversimplification of course but they found out the hard way that it doesn't work that they inevitably they miss a buck and a buck's going to run around and breed every doe that he can uh, and the other ones will simply just sit around there and eat and get fat, and that's all. And so it doesn't work. So management is really one of the best ways to do that, and management by uh, hunting is, is, a, is a great way. It also helps to pay for conservation efforts. It helps to pay for parks. It helps to, to – uh, it's, it's, it's revenue for parks, and it's quite a bit of revenue for parks, the money that's there. Uh, last year I paid my, uh, uh, my hunting license. I paid for my tags. And uh, and I took uh, one buck out last year, uh, and that was it. That's all I took, and I hunted for three months. And it took me that long. I didn't hunt every day, but I hunted, uh, you know, a few times a month out of those ones, and I managed to, to pull a pull a good sized buck out of there, and uh, processed them, and I got, 
He was a little over 100 pounds. I got 65 pounds of meat out of that uh, and off that buck. And I still have some some uh, uh, venison in my freezer for it. And it's been great uh, to be able to uh, to to put that on, to cook and put that on the table. And I felt pretty good doing that because I know it's part of a great conservation effort. I am a conservationist. I do believe in uh, in regulating the amount of uh, animals that uh, people can take out of these uh, these parks. But I do believe that we need to uh, to contribute and get involved in these. I am also a conservationist when it comes to fishing. And I believe fishing is important, but I believe that there are rules for a reason. The biologists set the rules that are there because they're monitoring the uh, uh, they're monitoring the number of fish. They're monitoring the wildlife that we have out there, which allows us to go out and to to be a part of that and be a part of nature. And in the same way, with uh, a farming uh, farming around here, I am a part of the of the process of food. I am a part of my uh, of of what I eat, and it makes me feel good about being that part. And I think that meat is important. Because certainly for states up in New York, uh, up up farther north, New York, getting up into Canada, it's very difficult to be able to to uh, raise solely a, a vegetarian diet up there because the window is so the growing window is so short. And you can try to manipulate that with greenhouses and electricity and heat and, and heat your greenhouse uh, and have artificial grow lights, but that's not sustainable to do that. Uh, you have to pay. For all of that electricity, which goes back to coal-powered uh, power plants or coal-fired power plants or nuclear power plants, in order to produce that, that electricity, and the heat has to come from somewhere. Are you using uh, um, heating fuel, which is diesel fuel? Are you using propane, or are you using electricity to heat your greenhouse? I suppose you could you could figure out a way. I know that there are, I've seen some farmers who who harvest methane off the manure that's produced from the cows and use that to power their farms for generators, uh, and they're self-sustaining to be able to do that. And I think that's great, and I think that'll work to be able to do that. But it, it's and there's a farm up in Wisconsin, I believe, that I've I've read about that does that and does it effectively. But in, as far as heating your, uh, um, if you're in Canada or in New York, for a vegetarian, you have to go to the grocery store and you purchase your food that is produced thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away. You're producing, you're eating soy that is produced in uh, uh, you know many 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 states away, and oftentimes in foreign countries. And animals must die for that as well, because the fertilizer comes from somewhere. The uh, uh, when you're plowing your fields, when you are uh, spraying them down with chemicals, if it's organic, then you are plowing your fields. You're using uh, management techniques, and ultimately animals die based on that. And so, so this is why I think that these these uh, organizations are unrealistic. And uh, you know, the, uh, being an omnivore and uh, and monitoring the amount of meat uh, you consume and the vegetables you consume and doing it as humanely as possible, I think is one of the best ways to to be able to uh, to to lead um, a lifestyle on this earth where you uh, you try to lead a sustainable lifestyle on this earth and you try to uh, to not leave a huge footprint behind after you're gone and to be involved in the food production and that does include meat as well. Uh, and not treating animals like they are human beings, like they are people. They are not. They are animals, certain draft horses, dogs, certain dogs, uh, poultry. They're raised for, they're, they've been domesticated. They are raised for a purpose, and that purpose is to provide food. Uh, and for draft horses, it is meant to pull things and to operate on uh, on farms. And dogs have a job on the farms as well. So with that, 
uh, looks like we've just about run out of time here. I want to thank everybody for listening today. I think in the upcoming episode, I think I'm going to have a uh, – I'd like to offer a debate between someone from one of these organizations and some of these uh, farmer activists that I know who have studied this and studied uh, uh, the importance of a, of a balanced – having a balanced farm, uh, a farm that produces animals and also vegetables – and it works in uh, um, symbiosis. It's a symbiotic relationship between these. And they are well-managed, and they are sustainable, and they, uh, they uh, um, uh, don't leave a big footprint behind on this planet with uh, uh, um, heavy use of medications, heavy use of chemicals. So in the future, I think I'm going to set this up and see that. But anyways, I want to thank everybody for listening here. I decided to go an hour early today because it was just me. I was not having a guest on. And I've got a busy day today here. I've got a lot of stuff to do, and I have to go break up some uh, poultry fights outside here in a few minutes. Let's see what I can do. I want to thank everybody for listening uh, to uh, The Farm, uh, which is every Friday, normally at 11 o'clock. Today we went an hour early. Uh, also, this Sunday uh, we have a new show that's been started with uh, Tara Beth Baptista, and she hosts a show called Harvesting Truth. She talks about lifestyle. She talks about healthy living. She talks about current events, news, uh, from a conservative perspective, um, and it's a good, interesting show. Lots of fodder for uh, for thought in that show. Uh, she talks about women's issues as well, too. Um, and uh, and so and and I think that uh, uh, from a freedom, from a constitutional perspective, constitutionist perspective uh, on on these issues, that is uh, Sundays at eight o'clock. On Mondays, we have ten o'clock. We have uh, history today. Uh, and that show is on a brief break right now, but I think that uh, Paul Angel, who hosts that show, who is a uh, editor, writer, uh, graphic designer, artist, uh, um, he talks about uh, uh, history, talks about history from a, uh, a lot of different perspectives, uh, sometimes controversial, sometimes uh, uh, always interesting. Uh, good listen, that's 10 o'clock on Mondays. And, of course, Dave Gahari, who's a writer, uh, vet, uh, is a uh, was on nuclear submarines, all around great guy, activist, uh, smart guy. Uh, he hosts a show on Wednesdays, uh, and that is uh, um, who's the bad guy. And uh, you can get that on Wednesdays. Check out the website overthrowradio.com uh, for the times for all the shows. Uh, that's there. And uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. And I hope you all have a wonderful day. And uh, Enjoy your weekend. I know I'm about to get outside here on this beautiful day and uh, enjoy uh, enjoy what's left of here. This weather is supposed to get hot again, but I got to go out and corn to hoe and work around some green beans and go mow around my garden. So with that, I'll leave everybody, and I wish you the best weekend, the best day, and the, the uh, wonderful weekend. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning into the Farm Radio Show on the Overthrow Radio Network, hosted by Blog Talk Radio. The Farm airs live every Friday from 11 a.m. to noon Eastern Time. Overthrow Radio Network has other great shows as well. On Mondays, tune into History Today with host Paul Angel from 10 to noon Eastern Time. And every Wednesday, there's Who's the Bad Guy with host Dave Gahari from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Time. For more details, check out Overthrow Radio Network's website at overthrowradio.com. And please take a moment to make a donation to support Free Speech Radio. If you value free speech in the United States, you should definitely support it. Have a great rest of your day, and see you next week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.